Welcome everyone to Foothills Christian Church, especially, excuse me, I'm just learning how to breathe and drink at the same time there. Uh, If you're here for the first time, we're glad that you're a part and we want you to know how you can grow in your faith. Our church is a little bit different because our uh, goal is to connect you first and foremost to Jesus. And then second of all, what we want to do is we want to connect you to his community and then finally to your mission and your purpose in life. If you're watching uh, for the first time online or checking us out, we are so glad that you are joining us. Uh, Pretty soon we're going to be having a time where the whole church family comes together. We kind of launch our our fall discipleship groups and small groups and many of our other ministries and we call it Roundup Sunday and it has become a tri-tip steak feed. And so if you've been a part of Foothills for a while and you want to be engaged with us, uh, it's on September 10th. We would love for you to participate and help do ministry that day. All you have to do is scan that QR code right there. And what it does is it sends you to a page that allows you to register for various positions of service and ministry on that day. So we would love to have you. And one of the things that we enjoy about Roundup is because it's a big meat day. It's a big tri-tip meat day. It's beef day. And so we also have some really great desserts. But we have a group of men who are confident in how you cook meat. And so it is so juicy and awesome. Don't you love confidence? I mean, don't you just love confidence? Confidence is like I mean, it has such a huge impact on life. Anytime somebody's single and they are looking to date somebody, you know what? They are interested in confidence. Women will say this. I want a guy who's confident. I don't want an insecure guy. I want a guy who knows what he wants and and how to go for it and work towards it. You know, I want a a guy who will actually approach me and ask me out on a date and actually have a plan, you know, and pick me up. And I know a lot of guys who say, when I'm dating a girl, I want to girl's confident. I don't want a girl who is clingy and needy and always trying to control me and be manipulated. I want to, she needs to have confidence. Parents, don't we want confident kids? We want our kids to grow up, feel like, wow, they can kind of attack or they can go after whatever it is that, you know, they feel their goal or career or mission or whatever is in life. We want kids that are confident and leadership. Have you ever had someone in a leadership position over you who wasn't confident? You know, they, they can't make a decision. And then when they make it, they change it because they're insecure about the one they made. They're always seeking everybody's approval. And it's like, ah, it's driving me crazy. And then confidence for ourselves, right? Don't you like it when you're more confident? Don't you feel, boy, I'm confident in this environment. And so, uh, you know, it's kind of, you're, you're just better in that, I remember back uh, early on in college, uh, we'd get invited to these uh, socials, right? And the whole point of these things is you would go to meet people, right? Just get to meet people. And I was like, 
I, I did not, I was like, can I plant a root canal? Or I'm just like, I don't know why, but I'm not confident, you know, walking into this room one-on-one, -on -one, meeting people for the first time and thinking that they will maybe like me or something, or I like them. I just don't know, right? I mean, there are all these strangers in this room and I don't know them, but what's so odd is in, in college, they say, okay, we're going to put you on stage in front of 500 people that you've met before. And I go, sure, no problem. I, it's like up there, I was confident, but down there, you know, meeting with people, I wasn't confident. I don't know what is up with that. It just shows you how weird I really am. And so one of the things that's so interesting is that when you're confident, right, you're like, boy, I, this is where I'm really comfortable. And you're not confident. You're like, oh, it's a, it creates a lot of stress in your life. Right. And so it got me thinking as I was preparing on this particular parable in our series, the moral of the story, which is studying the parables of Jesus is where does confidence actually come from? And why is it so difficult to grow in confidence? You know, we like confidence, we need confidence, we see it in other people, we, we like it, we like it in ourselves. But why is it difficult to grow our own confidence? And the answer to that question is because confidence has to do with your nature. And that's where our study begins today. Now, before I read from Matthew chapter 25, we're going to be in the parable of the sheep and the goats. I just wanted to remind you that uh, cultural context, especially in the parables, is so important. Oftentimes we'll read this story and we read it from a 2000 year Western civilization cultural context. And when I was a Christian and I first read this parable, I basically got the message is that, well, I better be nice to people or I'll get fried in hell. So be nice to people, you know, I'm kind of wondering if some parents or Sunday school teachers kind of use that, you know, you got to care about other people or you're going to be in trouble. But if I was a Jewish person raised in the Jewish culture and I'd heard this story from Jesus, it would hit totally different. So what we're going to do is we're going to consider some really challenging things today. Uh, this is a very weighty parable, but not in the way you think. It's in a different way. And so I hope to help you understand how a person who was raised in the first century as a Jewish person would hear the parable and what it meant to them. So let's start reading and let's get going. Matthew chapter 25, beginning with verse 31. And it starts off, the first phrase has a real bang to it, okay? When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Now this is really important because we look back and we go, oh yeah, Jesus King, raised from the dead, son of God, he has, he's a king. But you need to realize a couple things here that's happening. Number one is that Jesus rarely called himself the Messiah. He always called himself the Son of Man. Now, why did he do that? Well, because Jewish people had this sense that the reason why we are oppressed by the Romans right now is because we have a glitch in the way we're following the covenant. Because the covenant promises if we follow it perfectly, God will deliver us, right? Okay? And so that's what their thought was. That's why the Pharisees, Sadducees had to be such, you know, they were religious lawyers. They were trying to figure out, where's the glitch? Can we find it, you know, and fix it so then we'll be set free. And one of the glitches is that the Messiah hasn't come yet. 
Now, where did they get this idea that the Messiah would come? Well, they get it from a prophecy of Daniel. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, he, Daniel is in the city of Babylon, and he has a vision. And in this vision, he sees a beast in the throne room of the Ancient of Days. And in the throne room, the Ancient of Days, meaning God, is up on the throne. And then to the right hand of God is an empty throne. And in this vision, the beast comes in and the beast is destroyed in fire. And then the son of man is put on the throne and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom with no end. And he's giving all dominion and authority. So Jesus is referencing the fact that he is that guy. Now, where did Daniel get this notion for this vision? Well, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, what you see is this is right after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, and then God says you have to leave the Garden of Eden, okay? Now, in the Garden of Eden, there was supposed to be a throne, and on this throne was a man, a human being was supposed to sit and rule in partnership, perfect harmony with God, but because they brought sin into the world, guess what? They were kicked off the throne because now, so what's interesting is they were no longer able to overcome the influence of the beast or sometimes we translate it serpent. So in Genesis chapter three, what it says is this, is serpent beast because you deceived Adam and Eve and they brought sin into the world, it says, I will put enmity between you and the seed of Eve, and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. So Moses recorded this in the Pentateuch about the creation. He's like, I'm not sure what this means, but that's what God said to write, so I wrote it, right? And then what happens is you go, you go forward, you know, a thousand years or so, and here's Daniel. Uh, he's in Babylon, and he has a vision based on that. And he sees the empty throne that's in the Garden of Eden. He says, the Son of Man will be put on this throne, and he will be given all authority, all power, and his kingdom will never end. So Jesus is saying, I am the son of man. When the son of man comes in all of his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Okay. He says, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep and goats. Now, to the first century Jewish family, this was a very common thing. They all had flocks, they all had sheep, and they all had goats, and they tended to graze together because it grazed in different ways. But at times, you'd have to separate them, right? You'd have to separate them for shearing, for instance, because you shear sheep, you do not shear goats. And for other reasons, you'd have to separate them. So just a common thing that they were all familiar with. But he goes on to say, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, I want you to have this imagery here, and that is, is that if God is on his throne, right, and he says there is a throne on his right, then Jesus would be over here, right? So, well, actually, that would be your left. I guess I should stand over here, get that straight. And so, 
What happens is if then you are separated, if you are on the right side of Jesus, who is on the right side of God at this particular moment, it's just an image here. It's not, I don't want to say too much doctrinally about it, it's just an image in your brain is that you have God and then you have Jesus on his right. And then you have on his right, the sheep, and then on the left are the goats. And basically the, the imagery there is that they're being separated. So they remain under the judgment of God. Okay. But the kingdom is on Jesus' right. So the kingdom is through Jesus. This is why the sonship thing and the son of man thing is such a big deal to them hearing this parable. But now we get into the bulk media. I just want to set it up for you because here's the real essence of the parable. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So the kingdom that happened before the fall, you see, where there was a son, a man sitting on the throne, ruling alongside God. He says, take your inheritance, this kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will say uh, to Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty, give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go out to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you that whenever you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Then he will say to those on his left. Now notice what we've got is Jesus says what they did. They repeat it. And then Jesus says to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So he's referencing back to the prophecy of Daniel where the beast was destroyed by fire. Okay. And he goes, for I was hungry. You gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, when whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Well, let's get some basic biblical principles from this parable that have not changed in over 2000 years. And number one is this, and this is something that everybody in the first century Jewish culture would get because it was part of their culture and how they were raised. And that is everyone gives an account for their life. There comes a time that you will give an account for your life. Now, why, why do you give an account for your life? Well, the reason why is because your life matters, whether you want it to or not. Your life matters whether you want it to or not. And in today's world, no one wants to give an account anymore. 
But when we don't want to give an account for our lives, why do we wonder why life loses its value? Why are people more aimless today than 200 years ago or 100 years ago? It's because their life is void of meaning in their existence. Why is their life void of meaning? Because they have no value. When you take away the accounting for your life, guess what? Your life loses all meaning and value. And accounting infuses your life with meaning because it says this, your life matters no matter what. Your life is important. Today, the world in which we live robs people of value and meaning by simply saying there is no accounting. Today, there are false prophets who use Jesus to try and prove their case. They, they say things like, well, Jesus treated everybody the same. No, he didn't. Jesus said, don't judge, never judge. That's not what he said. There is no hell because a loving God would never send anybody to hell. There is no accounting for your life. How you live, it doesn't really matter because in the end, Jesus loves and forgives everyone. Of course, these are not biblical or true. And as a matter of fact, people who know Jesus, you know what? They take judgment the giving an account for their life, they take hell seriously. You know why? Because the person who spoke about judgment and hell more than anybody else in the Bible was Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus spoke about judgment and hell more in the Bible than anybody else and more than anybody else in the history of the world. I mean, he's like number one on talking about judgment and hell. Why? Because he is the son of man from Daniel. He is the prophesied seed of Eve in Genesis 3. And he is here to crush the serpent or the beast that is a part of every one of us. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So when it comes to giving an account for your life, don't believe the societal lie that says there is no accounting because it will rob you of the core foundational belief that your life matters. Now, if we must give an accounting for our lives because our lives matter. The next question is this, what do I give an account for? And here is where we're going to say some challenging things and we're gonna see the parable in a different light than the Western mind would see it. Let me start off by just telling you that what exactly do you give an accounting for? You give an accounting for your nature. You see, the focus of this parable is on the conversation between the king on the throne and the two groups of people. The king says to the first group, right, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You took me in. I was naked. You clothed me. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then to the second group, what does he say? The exact same thing, except they didn't do it. Now, the key to understanding the parable and the bulk of this parable is this conversation, right, is in 
the reply. Because what did both groups say? They said the exact same thing. When did we do this to you? They were both shocked. See, the people on the right, they said, well, uh, Jesus, when did we do that to you? And the people on the left said, well, Jesus, when did we ever see you and not do it? You see, the key is understanding their surprise. It's very telling. And it tells you whether you are a religious person or a redeemed person. See, he's talking about their nature. The people who did it did what they did not because of a guideline, a religious rule, a requirement, a code of ethics, or anything else. They did it because of who they were. The second group, right, were looking for a rule because they were like, well, if I would have known it was you, I would have what? Done it. You see, some people, religious people, treat faith like a college syllabus. You got to go get the syllabus and you pull out your phone and you read all the dates on the assignments are due and you say, hey Siri, tell me, set a date that this paper is due on this date and give me a two-week reminder. Of course, some people might say, give me a 24-hour reminder, you know, so I can cram for it. But a lot of people treat it that way. If I would only have known that that was the rule, if I would have only known that was a requirement, then I would have done it. But that is called being a religious person. The first group did it. They said, well, when did we ever do that to you, Jesus? He said, when you did it to anybody, you did it to me. Meaning they could not help themselves. So what are they being held accountable for? They're being held accountable for their nature. And it wasn't an issue of compliance. It was the natural outflow of their hearts. It was the fruit of their transformed Nature. That's why he says, to the righteous, I will say. They were made righteous. And then what the king does is this is really awesome is the king tells us how to know whether our nature has been transformed or not, right? Our very nature. If my nature has been changed by the redemptive act of Jesus Christ, then I can't help but see it flow out of my life. What did Jesus tell the woman at the well? He says, if you drink of the water that I give you, it will become a wellspring out of your life that never ends. If you drink of the water that the world has, what is, you're always thirsty. If you're, if you're like, man, I want to be a good person, so I want to know what all the rules are so I can follow them, guess what? There's never enough rules to follow. You always feel thirsty. See, what, what this is, is a difference between religious and redeemed people. It's about your nature. You see, when my nature changes, I can't help but the wellspring come flowing out of my life. 
I can't help but be filled with what? Joy that spills out of my life. And these people in the first group, what were they doing? They were getting everybody wet from the wellspring flowing out of their life. And Jesus says, by the way, you're spilling all that water and from your fountain of joy on me. The other people said, well, if we would have known that, we would have, we would have you know, upped the pressure on our well and sprinkled some stuff around. If my nature is changed, I can't help but be a philanthropist. Uh, you know, money is just a tool, and I can't help but use it for the king's kingdom and the building of it. If my nature is changed, I'm not interested in following religious rules for simple compliance. I'm a, I, I want to express my joy in any way possible that I can. I don't want my life to be like taxes, you know. I mean, paying taxes is this, What? Pay your taxes, comply, or you get in trouble. I mean, who wants to live faith that way? You know, God is the IRS. So pay your religious stuff and, or you get into trouble. But that's not it. That's not it. What, what Jesus is saying is this. They were, they were held account according to their nature, and then he gives you the way in which you can evaluate whether your nature has changed or not. Am I more like a sheep, this person, or am I more like a goat? Because that tells you where your nature is at. And when my nature is changed, I can't help but live joyfully. Because I'm walking in who God has changed me into. You know, this is hard because we live in a self-centered, hyper-individualistic, emphasis on narcissism type of society. We really do. Our society worships individual success, self-love, self-care, self-expression, self-identity, self-this, self-that. Today there is a religion called cultural Christianity, and it is not real faith. It is not real faith at all. As a matter of fact, its statement of faith is simply this, do I have to? Do I have to go to church to be a Christian? Do I have to be nice to people if I'm a Christian? Do, do I have to figure out what my spiritual gift is and use it if I'm going to be a Christian? Do I have to give or tithe in order to be a Christian? And you know what a Christian means? Christian is simply a shortened version of follower of Jesus. Do I have to? Do I have to find a ministry in order to follow Jesus? Do, do I have to? Do I have to do that? Do I have to? Do I have to? Do I have to? When this is a person's frame of mind, then that person's nature has not changed. It's not been redeemed. These are the people that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. He goes, depart from me because I don't know who you are. I don't know you, and you don't know me. In this parable, those people are called the goats. Now, people whose nature has been changed 
are completely different. They're not perfect. They don't have it all figured out. They continue to make mistakes. But there's something that's changed in their core, right? Their core essence within them. And they are different people. Oftentimes when people come and meet Jesus, you know, they're so excited, you know. Uh, I, I was like, you know, a few years ago, maybe, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, there was this uh, couple and they came to know Christ, you know, late in life and they got baptized. They were so excited. And they said, Pastor, we have to have a conversation with you. And I was like, okay, let's, let's have a conversation. What's going on? They go, we, we have a kind of a little problem. And I go, really, you know, new in faith, what's your problem? They go, well, the church only worships one day a week. How come we're not worshiping more? I mean, can't we do this more often? It's so awesome. It's so invigorating, you know? And I love, I'm learning all these new songs. I mean, can't we do it more often? And I'm like, that's a refreshing take, <laughs> right? When can we get together and do that? When, when can we get the church together and do something as a family? When, when can we do ministry? When can we have some fun? When, there's people out there that need to be served. When can we go serve people? Just tell me where to go. I want to go do that. It's, when can we seek justice? There's some unjust things happening over here. Man, when can we go do something about that? I'm just so, we, I want to pray into that. When can we pray more? Is there more times when we pray? Pastor, the building's locked. Well, we got to get in there to unlock the building so we can pray more. Can, can we go and love mercy? You know, can we love mercy? How about walking humbly with God? You see, people whose nature changed are not people who say, do I have to? They are people who say, when can I? When can I? So here we come full circle, my friends. Where does confidence come from? I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from your nature. But true confidence only comes when your nature has been changed by the work of Christ in your life. You see, the problem of why the throne was empty is because Adam and Eve brought sin into the world. And death spread to everybody. So our sin nature, that part of us, is a beast. And we cannot rule or have victory over that beast. The very first beastly act is when Cain killed his brother. And he was held accountable for that. And he said to God, I cannot bear up under this. Is what does he say? He says, the beast, sin, is crouching at your door. But you can learn to rule over it. And then you read the Old Testament. And what do you read? Nothing but a whole bunch of people doing a bunch of beastly things over and over and over again. I mean, when you read the Old Testament, my friend, it's pretty much a train wreck, Right? Of all this kind of mess. I mean, any kind of evil thing you can imagine happens in the Old Testament. Because no one could have power over the beast. Because there was no seed, no son of man that could deliver us from the law of sin and death. That's why in the Bible it says that Christ came and he brought us who were dead back to life. This is why Paul says in Romans, he says that God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, while we were dead in our trespasses, it says why the beast was ruling over us, we can control it. It says that Christ died for us and set us free. 
So it all comes down to your nature. Confidence comes from your redeemed nature. Do I have to, people, have no confidence? Do I have to do that, people? They don't have any peace. They spend their time deconstructing and tearing down and figuring out everything they don't have to do. There's no meaning in that. There's no joy in that. But when can I, people? When can I? When, when can I do that? That sounds like fun. When can I serve? When can I do ministry? When can I give? When can I pray? When can I worship? When can I have joy? When can I love the people who are broken around me? When can I encourage and lift up? When can I are people who know who they are and they cannot wait for an opportunity to be that? And I guarantee you, when your life is like that, you will be nothing but confident every single day of your life. Let's stand for closing prayer. Lord, I've said it many, many times. I always ask myself, when can I say it again? And now is a time like this. You're awesome. Amen. <laughs>